So today we'll be reading from Isaiah 10. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy, and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Thanks, Forrest. Good morning. Rabbi Harold Kushner watched his son, Aaron, gradually waste away and die at the age of 14 of a terrible disease called progeria, which is a rare premature aging disease. Out of that terrible experience of watching his son die, Rabbi Kushner wrote a book called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, in which he wrestles with that whole problem of evil and suffering. It's an age-old struggle, isn't it? Because we, we wrestle with the idea that if we believe in God and we believe God is sovereign and we believe that God is loving then how can evil exist in the world? In our thinking, if God was truly sovereign and loving, he would do away with evil. He wouldn't allow it to touch our lives. Rabbi Kushner's conclusion as he wrestled with this was that he decided, well, that can't be true about God, so God must not be sovereign. His conclusion was that, well, God is loving but not sovereign. Therefore, God can't stop evil. He can't control it. But he can love us through the suffering we face and through the evil we face in this world. I respect his wrestling, but his conclusion is not biblical. But we need to really wrestle with this, don't we? I mean, how do you handle the reality that evil often seems to be winning in this world? And suffering seems so random. Good people are struck down and experience great suffering. And bad people, people who openly reject God, seem to have it easy so often. And life goes well for them. How do we deal with that? Do we minimize God's character like Rabbi Kushner? Or do we try to just put our head in a hole and and ignore the bad stuff out there and hope it doesn't hit us? Or do we look it squarely in the face but get over? come by discouragement sometimes, which I confess, that's where I end up sometimes when I look at the overwhelming evil and suffering in the world out there, but also right around me. I think our passage today is one of the most important ones in the scripture 
to help us understand the problem of evil in our world. While it doesn't explain all the whys of why God allows suffering and works through it, this passage does give us some wonderful truths that can serve as anchors to our soul when the winds of evil come and suffering hits us and threatens our faith. So pray with me and then we'll look together at this passage. Lord Jesus, as we bow before you as your people here, we confess that this problem of evil is way too big for us. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. It's difficult. So as we look at this passage today, may your spirit open our eyes, the eyes of our heart and our minds in a way that might deepen our trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are some truths to hang on to when facing an evil world? I want to highlight four out of this passage. The first is that God controls evil for his purposes. God controls evil for his purposes. Now, let me set the context of what's going on in this passage. In chapter 7 and 8, God prophesied through Isaiah to King Ahaz and to the people of Israel. And he said, I am bringing, because of your sin, because of your rebellion, Israel, I'm bringing Assyria against you. And Assyria will come and wipe out the northern nation of Israel. And the southern kingdom of Judah, he would come and he would do devastation, but Assyria would not quite wipe it out. But God was using it to punish his people. Now, Assyria was the cruelest nation on earth. It was known as a terribly ungodly and evil empire. If you want to compare it to anything today, compare it to ISIS. In fact, Assyria was in that exact place where ISIS claims its caliphate today. And they were very similar in how they approached people. They would come in and they were known for their terrible cruelty to women, children. Other cultures would come in and they would take over when they won a victory over a nation and they would allow the nation to exist. Babylon would come in and they would take the people away, which was bad because they'd lose their homeland and take them to their own place. What Assyria did is they would come in and when they took over a country, they would take the people away and separate and scatter them all over and then bring other people in because they didn't want to just destroy a people. They wanted to destroy their entire culture. They were known and often called, they've been called the Nazis of the ancient world, although I think ISIS is even a worse comparison. So the question for Israel and for us as we look at this is we think, wait a minute, Israel's God's people. And God is going to use Assyria, this awful, horrible nation, to bring judgment and discipline on his own people? That seems completely unfair. It's the same wrestling that the prophet Habakkuk had a little over 100 years later as he wrestled with the fact that God was bringing Babylon against the southern kingdom at that point, Judah. And he wrestled with that. And here's what Habakkuk cried out, but it certainly can apply to Assyria in Isaiah's day. Your eyes are too pure, God, to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. 
why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? That's the cry of Habakkuk's heart, and it's the cry of our heart when we wrestle with evil in our world. God, I know you to be pure and holy, and you can't be around evil, and yet you're using it to punish people even more righteous than they. It doesn't make sense to me, God. But here's what God says in verse 5 and 6. I want to highlight that again. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against the godless nation, which is Israel. Notice what it says. Assyria is a rod in God's hand. It's a staff that he sends, that he wields for his purposes. It's perhaps the clearest statement in the Bible that God doesn't just tolerate evil or somehow uh, put up with it or allow it. It's actually a clear statement that God controls it for his purposes. It's in his hand. He sends it. He uses it. But notice if it's in his hand, he limits it and controls it for his own purposes. If God wasn't controlling evil in our world today, we would all be immediately destroyed. Because that's the purpose and plan of evil, is to destroy all God's creation, including us. But God controls it for greater purpose, for his purposes. Now, this doesn't mean that somehow we should tolerate evil or that we should think all evil is somehow for a good purpose. We are still to see evil as the enemy. It is God's enemy. It is our enemy. And we should fight it wherever possible. But we can still trust that God will control it to accomplish his purposes, whether we understand his purposes or not. I think that's really important to get. We can trust that God is using it for his purposes, whether we understand his purposes or not. His purposes may be judgment. It may be to refine his people so we might trust him more. He might use evil and suffering to change us, to make us more like Christ, like Romans eight twenty eight. right? For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And what's the good that he goes on to talk about? It's Christ's likeness. God's committed to helping us become more like Christ. And he uses even evil and suffering to help accomplish that. Or it may be something we don't even know, but we can trust that God wields it for his greater purposes. That's number one that we need to hang on to, the anchor of our soul, that God controls evil for his purposes. But a couple of things we need to learn about evil is that evil always takes us further than we want to go. <laughs> it always takes us further than we want to go. In verse 6, it says, God says, I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. God's plan was that Assyria would be used to, to take booty, to have a limited kind of punishment against his people. But what happens instead is that Assyria goes far further than that. It's arrogant. And it goes on to say, yet, verse 7, it, Assyria, does not so intend, nor does it plan in its heart. 
but rather its purpose is to destroy and to cut off many nations. And it goes on to speak of the arrogance of Assyria. I've wiped out a lot of nations. I'm going to wipe out little Israel and Judah and Jerusalem as well. See, they're arrogant. And instead of doing what God called it to do, evil goes farther than he planned it. This should be an encouragement and a reminder, a challenge to us that evil is something we need to stay away from. We can't play with it because Satan wants control of your life. Evil wants to take over your life. And if you or I give into it just a bit, it will take us much further than we ever thought we would go. It would take more and more of your heart. There's so many men and women I've worked with as a pastor in counseling and who made a little choice to flirt with somebody at work and then suddenly found themselves in an affair and they thought, how did I get here? They let evil live and it took them further. The alcoholic who says, yeah, I can have just one drink. The friend I had who was addicted to gambling and thought, oh, you know what, I can just play around a little and ended up destroying his family. The times we feel like I- I've just had it and I'm going to give in to my anger with my spouse, with my kids. And what happens, we end up doing great harm and it takes us further than we wanted to go. It's just a reminder to us that evil, we can't give in to it. It will take us further than we want to go. Third truth to hang on to is that pride is the essence of evil. We see this in Assyria starting in verse 12. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. For I have understanding and I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants and my hand reached to the riches of the people like a nest. As one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth and there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. Did you hear a word, common word there over and over? (laughs) I, my You see, Assyria is arrogant and the pride is what drives them. And they say, I can defeat every nation. You know what the nations are like? It's like an unguarded nest. I just reach in and take the eggs for myself. There's an arrogance to Assyria. He said it's like taking candy from a baby. Pride is the essence of evil. Sometimes we think of evil as doing bad things like ISIS does. Well, yes, but what's the root of all that? It is pride. Anytime we start taking credit instead of acknowledging that God is the one who's behind it all, God is in control, he is the all-powerful one, then evil begins to have its way with us when we give in to pride. This self-dependence, this independence from God. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, has a chapter about pride as the greatest sin and says all other sins are simply the fruit of a prideful heart. What led Satan to rebel against God Almighty? It was pride. He wanted to take God's place. And we all inherited that same spirit. Every one of us wrestles with being God of our own kingdom. 
and not submitting to him. And so pride is the essence of evil out there, but also in our own hearts. Pride leads us to put ourselves above others, to do harm to others, to get what we want. All the conflicts in the world have as their foundation pride. Evil has its way in the world because of pride. So it's important to understand that the pride is the essence of evil. And then fourth truth I want to highlight is that God opposes evil and will judge it in his timing. God hates evil. God opposes it. It's anti-God. And he will judge it in his timing. God is a holy God. He only uses evil for his time, for his purposes, and then he will judge it. Notice verse 15 and following. God now says to Assyria, this prideful nation that thinks it's in control, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it or like a rod lifting him who's not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors. And under his glory, a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. He goes on to say, in one day, this will happen. Now, what God is saying is, you think you're so powerful, Assyria? You're the mightiest nation on earth. You've destroyed every nation you've come against. But you know what? I'm simply going (laughs) to... Blow my breath and you'll be destroyed. So he says it'll be a wasting disease in a single day. What's he describing? What actually happened in history? Well, I want to jump ahead in Isaiah chapter 36, because in Isaiah 36, we see historically what actually happened to Assyria. They had wiped out the northern kingdom of of Israel, and they were now coming into Judah, and they were destroying the cities, and they were ready to take Jerusalem. Chapter 36, verse 1. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Sennacherib brings his huge army and they surround Jerusalem and they're ready to destroy it. So Hezekiah prays to God and he says, Lord, we are in trouble. (laughs) Unless you do something, we are utterly lost. But notice chapter 37, verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 of the camp of the Assyrians, a wasting disease in one day. And when the men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sharezer, his sons, killed him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. And the end of the story is very shortly after this. Babylon came and destroyed this mighty nation of Assyria. They'd been so weakened that they were defeated. You see, evil may look like it's winning. (laughs) And it looked that way to Israel, right? I mean, they're looking out the walls of Jerusalem, 185,000 Assyrians, and they've defeated everybody else. But in one night... 
God just goes and blows the entire army away. Let that be an encouragement to us, brothers and sisters, when it seems like evil is winning out there, that it is not. God knows what he's doing. In the end, God will restrain evil and he will destroy it. Amen? Yes, he will. God has his reasons for allowing evil to exist in the meantime. And I just think we don't understand it very well. We're, you know, we're like a little child who who the parent says, no, you can't eat a donut before dinner. (laughs) No, you can't run out in the street. And the child just doesn't understand why. We don't understand the purposes of God, but we can trust that God loves us and is working all this for good. So whether we can see the reasons as to why God allows evil and suffering in our lives and in this world for a time, we can trust that he's at work. And in the end, we can trust that he will judge evil in increments here on earth, and in the end, at the judgment seat of Christ. He will wipe it out fully and completely forever. In the end, evil will be defeated. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire, and God will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And I can't wait. Next week, though, if you want to hear more about that, we'll be talking about it next week. God judges evil. Think about what he does to nations, the history of nations on this earth. Every time a nation begins to get more and more arrogant like Assyria and think we're in control, we don't need God, we can handle life on ourselves, what inevitably happens is it becomes more and more immoral over time as it walks away from God and then God judges it. That's happened to every nation throughout history. Makes you wonder how long God will tolerate our nation, doesn't it? In the meantime... God begins by dealing with the evil in his people. He uses a broken, fallen world to purify his people to accomplish his purposes. So God will judge evil in the end. So given these truths that God's in control, he uses it, and evil is dangerous, we need to stay away from it, we need to deal with the pride in our lives and all of that, but God will judge evil. How should we live as God's people who are still stuck in this world that's so difficult and full of suffering and pain. How should we live? How should we, the people of God, live in this kind of world? How do we live out our faith? Well, one of the things we need to realize is that God is always working in the midst of this world through a faithful remnant. Verse 20, I want to read that again. Forrest just read it, but I want to highlight verse 20 through 22 again. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel... And those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined. You see, God always works through a faithful remnant, but... I think these verses give us some encouragement if we are the remnant and I, if we are the ones who are trusting him and walking with him today in this dark world, then we are the remnant. So how are we to live? I think there's four good responses we see in this passage. Number one, if we're going to be the faithful remnant in a dark world, we need to repent. Repent. Now, Josh covered 
chapter 9 last week about repentance, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But here in this verse where it says those will return, verse 21, a remnant will return. Only a remnant will return. That word for return is the Hebrew word shuv, which is the word for repent. You see, when we turn back to God, when we come back, that's repentance. And what we need to do, first of all, is repent, turn back to God ourselves. It's tempting as believers to look at all the evil out in the world and all the bad stuff out there and point fingers, right? (laughs) At least we're not like them. But God always begins with us. When he wants to deal with evil, he always begins with his own people and their own hearts. And so I think... If we really want to be useful to fight evil in our world, the very first thing is to deal with our own sin, our own pride, our own arrogance, our own self-dependence, and to take that to God and be broken of that and humbly come to him and realize I would be doing all those things if God hadn't worked in my life and given me grace. I can't take credit for anything. So number one, if we want to respond as the people of God, as the faithful remnant in a dark world, we need to personally repent. Secondly, we need to lean hard on the Lord. Lean hard on the Lord. Verse 24 says, don't fear the Assyrian who strikes you. Uh, our tendency, I think, of looking out at the dark world out there and the things that strike us is to get afraid. But he says, don't be afraid. Instead, verse 20, he says, rely on the one, no longer rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord. That word for rely means to lean. And it's actually a word that's used. It means to put your weight on, all your weight. It's a word that's used in the story of Samson. Remember the story of Samson in in the book of Judges where Samson is one of the judges of Israel. Not very godly guy at all. In fact, he's kind of a mess. And, but he, his strength is in his long hair. And he fights the Philistines. But Delilah finally convinces him to tell his secret of his strength. She cuts his hair. He gets arrested and taken by the Philistines. They blind him. They chain him up. And one day they're having a huge feast in the temple of Dagon, their god. 3,000 people on the roof, thousands underneath. And they bring Samson out to show him off. But his strength is coming back as his hair grows. And he says to the servant leading him, help me, help me to put my hands on the pillars of the temple. And it says that Samson leaned on the pillars and the entire temple collapsed. And it says that Samson killed more in his death than he did during his life of the enemy. But that's a picture to me of what it means to lean hard on God. We've got to lean hard enough so that if we're leaning on God, we are putting our full weight on him and, and we are lost if he collapses. Have you ever put your weight on God that hard where if he gives way, you will be lost? It means to put your full weight on him. Anything else we put our weight on, brothers and sisters, is going to give way. It's going to collapse. I remember when I was in high school and we were on a wrestling trip and we stopped by Abert Lake in eastern Oregon between Burns and Lakeview. You know, beautiful desert. It's not beautiful. It's desert country. There's nothing out there. 
Now, we were smart high schoolers, you know, and we're stopped along the lake to go out and take a stroll, stretch our legs a little bit, and we were really smart. The, there was ice a little ways out, and then it was water. And, of course, we thought we would just walk out on the ice. Well, I led the way, <laughs> of course. And I'm out there ahead of everybody else, and the ice breaks right in front of me, and the piece I'm on slants down, and I begin to fall. My feet are in the water. I'm barely standing on a piece of ice, and I'm starting to fall into this lake, frozen lake. Fortunately, my friend Kenny was behind me. He reached out and grabbed my belt loop and pulled me back. But to me, that's a picture of anything we put our weight on. Other than God, it will eventually give way. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's your own abilities, your money, your bank account, I think we've learned, hopefully, that if we try to put our weight on somehow having the right government, (laughs) that doesn't work. Anything you put your weight on will eventually collapse. It will eventually give way. And so to lean hard on God means to put your full weight on him, to trust in the Lord with your own heart. And, And to realize in the midst of that, what can help us lean on him is to realize Jesus went to the cross. He entered into our suffering. He understands our pain and what it's like to live in an evil world because he took on all the forces of evil on the cross. And he walks with us today through our suffering. So what does it mean for us to practically lean hard on him? Let me just give you a couple of examples. One from my own life. You know, there's times where God will bring a need before me and I'll, a financial need. And I'll think, yeah, but God, I've got this. And I'm already given, you know, a lot to the church and, and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And God says, will you trust me? Will you trust me to give to this need I've laid before your heart? Will you lean heavily on me to take care of you? Or maybe there's a need you have of, reconciling a relationship and you've put it off for a long time because you're angry at somebody and you just don't want to forgive. To lean hard on Jesus means maybe to say, I don't know how they're going to respond, but I am going to lean hard on him to go seek to reconcile this relationship. I've harbored this way too long. There's something in every one of our hearts that God wants us to lean hard on him for. Let's lean hard. So repent, number two, lean hard on him. Number three, live out our righteousness. The end of verse 22 says, overflowing with righteousness. I think what we're called to is to live out righteousness, to depend on the life of Jesus in a way so that in this evil world, we will be lights and salt standing out in the darkness. I think often as Christians, too often, we, we think, it's, it's all evil out there, so we need to go out there and fight it. We need to defeat evil. And so we end up taking up the same, same weapons that the world does, power and force and numbers, and we try to defeat evil by its own tactics, and it really doesn't work. I think about even handling something like abortion. I think some of us are called to fight to change laws. But I think to be lights in the darkness and salt in this world, more of us are called to reach out to young pregnant teens, to 
give them an alternative to promote adoption, to reach out to those who have had abortions and show them the love of Christ and care for them in the midst of that, to care for, more, for babies and on and on. There's all kinds of ways I think we can be salt and light in this world. And because it's the light that drives out the darkness. So live out righteousness. And then number four, I think God wants us to keep in mind that God is both sovereign and loving. He's both. He's sovereign and loving. And we need to keep that balance as believers in, when we face evil and understand that he's always at work for love. Love guides everything he does and he, in the midst of his being in control. One thing from this passage that has really encouraged me and reminding me of God's love is what happened to Assyria down the road. Assyria, this evil nation, this horrible nation that God had to judge because of its pride and arrogance and its cruelty. Remember what God did in the book of Jonah. Where did God send Jonah? To Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. And as he called them to repentance, the entire city repented. Now, it didn't last, okay? because they continued to be cruel and had to be defeated by Babylon. But God reached out to them with his love. And the end of the story is that when Jesus came and the apostles began to spread the gospel in the early days of the church, one of the first peoples to respond to the gospel were in an area of Syria and Turkey and Iraq. Guess who those people were? Assyrians. Assyrians. And they, en masse, as a nation, responded to the gospel. And they have maintained their gospel witness for the last 2,000 years. You know one of the main peoples that ISIS has attacked and persecuted? The Assyrian Christians. Today, there are 2 to 4 million Assyrian Christians in the world. And they're heavily persecuted. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted, our Assyrian Christian friends. When it talks about a remnant who trusts God and relies on him, he's talking about Assyria. What does that tell you about God's love? In the midst of how he's working, he's always calling people out of the nations to serve him and love him. And we can always keep in mind that God is both sovereign and loving. Brothers and sisters, it's hard. It's hard to live in a fallen world. I don't like it. We long for evil to be destroyed and for God to reign fully. But in the meantime, we're called to lean hard on him, to, to repent of sin in our own life, to lean hard on him, to live out righteousness, be salt and light in our communities, wherever we are, to live out our faith and keep trusting in a God who is sovereign and loving and who will eventually judge evil completely. Remember that God is not a God who is distant and exempt from suffering, but he actually took it on on the cross. He bore the brunt of all that evil had to throw at him for your sake and my sake. We're here because he bore the evil that we should have borne. He took it on the cross and he defeated evil. And he will finally crush it once for all when he returns. Maranatha, come soon. Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord, thank you for being who you are. 
sovereign, in control. And Lord, we may not understand the mystery of how great and awesome you are because we are finite, you are infinite. But may we be people who rely on you, who lean hard on you in a way that allows us to live out our faith in this dark world so that you might be glorified as we are salt and light in the darkness. Strengthen us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.